Are you ready to overcome the complexities and burdens that come with your success? Join the team at Centura Wealth Advisory in the Live Life Liberated podcast. Now, on to the show. Hello and welcome to Live Life Liberated with the team from Centura Wealth Advisory. Chris Osman is in the hot seat on the mic and he's got a guest. Chris, what's going on? How you doing, Eric? Thanks for having me today. I'm fantastic. Today, I... Thanks for having me. I get to be a part of a podcast where I get to learn more stuff. All right. Yeah. Today we're going to be uncovering India and investing in venture capital there. Why well, could be the wow. next bright spot from an investment uh, perspective. Today, I'm, I'm honored to have Manu uh, Ricky with me. And we are going to be, as I mentioned, talking about India, the investment opportunities there. Uh, Manu and his partner, Sheetal Ball, uh, the new fund that they are currently fundraising for. And want to talk a little bit about why those chosen sectors and and end with talking about the value of partnering with investors that have adopted an institutional due diligence process such as us here at Centura Well. Awesome. So with that, would love to introduce Manu Ricky uh, here, here for the third time on Live Life Liberated. So Manu, welcome back. I uh, would love if you'd give everyone just a, a formal introduction, uh, a little bit about, about yourself. Thank you, Chris. It's uh, always a pleasure to be here. I'm super stoked to be here the third time. I've always enjoyed my conversations with Derek and now with you. You know, my background is, uh, you know, I've spent most of my work life in the corporate world, but five years ago, I left the corporate world to start my first venture capital fund under the brand GrowX Ventures. And uh, we've been investing from that fund for the last four years or so. And now, on the back of that success, we're launching our second fund under the brand Mirac Ventures. And this is going to be a little larger fund than what we've done in the past, but with a similar thesis of investing in early stage B2B tech opportunities in India. Great. Thank you. Thank you, Manu. Uh, before really digging in uh, to the investment opportunity, we'd love to talk about India and why the opportunity to invest in India, particularly venture capital, uh, is such a bright spot today. So many may not know that as of April 23, uh, April of this year, India is now the most populous country in the world. But I want to talk really about the investment landscape. So what are some positive trends that you're seeing starting to develop that present such great investment opportunities? Yeah, you know, the thing about the population being the largest is that at least we now become number one at something. <laughs> and it's the beginning of maybe a long streak of things that we become number one in. We're quite excited about the future of India. You know, we've over the last two decades or so been talking about how there are opportunities, how there are a lot of macro trends that are going to come together and unlock growth momentum for India. And quite frankly, we've been disappointed in the last 20 years that things haven't come together as well as we would have liked to. Now, if you look at the commentary of most economists, you look at the commentary of most business leaders around the world. Interestingly, I was just listening to Farid Zakaria, I think week 10 days ago, and he'd been to India. I think everybody unanimously is now talking about how this seems to be the time for India. And there are multiple factors that are leading to that. One obviously is that not only are we the most populous country in the world, but we also have one of the youngest population in the world, right? So the age median in India is 28 years which means that you know, as the world needs more and more people to produce, India will be able to 
supply that labor, that talent that's needed to do that. The second is, you know, the strong tailwinds that we've had while we've been disappointed over the last two decades at, at growth not achieving the heights that we expected. There's still been growth. We've still been one of the top two, three countries, large countries that have been growing fastest in the world. But I think those tailwinds are going to deliver well over six and a half percent growth next year and the year after, which is to be, which is a great position to be in because if you look at the rest of the world, most countries, most developed countries are going to struggle to just keep recession at bay, right? China is still going to grow, but not as handsomely as it has in the past. So six and a half percent in that context looks like a great number. And I think that's going to have a virtuous effect, create a virtuous cycle on a bunch of areas, right? One of the big drivers of growth in the next decade, so to speak, is going to be manufacturing in India. So if you look at our history, if you look at last five decades of India, you know, India really missed the boat on manufacturing. Whatever little growth we achieved or whatever grand growth we achieved, depending on who you talk to, was a function of the services industry firing, right? So in the US, everybody's heard of offshoring resources. Everybody's heard of technology being exported from India or, or people being exported in IT around the world. And in India, there were things like financial services, banking services, others that were firing. So, you know, services as a sector was contributing meaningfully, but manufacturing has always been lagging. It's still hovered around between 14 to 16% of our GDP, right? You compare that with China, where GDP contribution from manufacturing has been 40%. And it's very important for manufacturing to, you know, grow at a rapid rate in countries because that is what provides mass employment, right? So if you want to lift the overall country, more number of people out of poverty, and you need to increase the per capita, manufacturing is the only way to do it, right? So finally, it seems like we've got it together. And, and just spending a little bit more time on manufacturing, there are two or three factors that are driving it, right? So as a nation, we always realized that we needed to get manufacturing right. And fortunately, the current regime has come up with very uh, robust policies, right? Very organized. They've, they've organized their policy and frameworks in a manner where it encourages people to go down the path of establishing large production houses, uh, production manufacturing capabilities. They've created a program called PLI, Production Link Incentives, for $25 billion, right? So they, they give people credit. And as a result, we're seeing some larger brands setting up production capabilities in India, right? Tim Cook, Apple CEO was yep. in India recently, and Foxconn just four years ago had started to build an operation in India to manufacture cell phones. So just four years ago, we were a net importer of smartphones, and now we are a net exporter in, in, in smartphones. So, you know, the journey has been very rapid, and I think this journey will continue to accelerate. The other thing that's happened post-COVID is this shift in geopolitical environment and reassessment of supply chains for people. Everybody that has usually used China as their go-to destination for manufacturing capabilities is now looking at a China plus one strategy. And I think that's one area that India is going to benefit from. So we've got the labor, we've got incentives from the government, uh, we've got geopolitical trends that are helping us. And over the last decade or so, we built capabilities and capacity to manufacture from automobiles to cell phones, right? So these four trends are going to come together and unlock a lot more GDP growth. Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. It sounds like a lot of that has been a catalyst of a very supportive political regime 
can go a little bit further and maybe describe how the political regime has been supportive of of the private sector, particularly private private equity and venture capital? You know, so one of the things that our government realized is that the fastest way to create value, unlock value, uh, was to adopt technology across both the country and drive adoption of technology in businesses and consumers. Then there was one way of creating equity. That was one way of creating financial inclusion. That was one way of delivering services to the remotest parts of India. And fortunately for us, the government also realized that it can't do this on its own, right? Which is a big departure from how Indian governments have thought over the last 60 years of our independence, right? Over the last 60 years, the government's approach to delivering services was we will build it, we will own it, we'll own the banks, we'll own the insurance companies, we'll own the airlines. But the current prime minister has been very clear about saying government has no business being in business, but it, it's helped build the infrastructure on which businesses can get built, right? I often say that if you look at our physical highways, they're clearly of those of developing nations. They're far behind those of developing nations. And even when you compare against some of our peers in Asia, you'll find us lagging behind. But when you compare our digital expressways, we are well ahead of even the most developed countries in the world. Right. So today, the backbone that's been built on, on UPI, on our financial transactions, is enabling a lot of companies to come and innovate and deliver services to consumers and businesses in the most efficient manner. It's unlocking innovation at an unprecedented level. Today, if you're sitting in the remotest part of India, you could still transact uh, digitally using your cell phone. You could send and receive payments. If you're a merchant that's operating a small business, you can actually operate a business digitally, receive payments and send payments at almost zero cost, right? So if you look at that compared to the rest of the world, you know, there are a lot of merchant fees that the businesses have to pay. And in India, it's real-time payments at zero cost. Today, you could do your KYC um, virtually over video, right? And and th th those practices are making banks more efficient. They're making it possible for them to serve customers that have been on the fringes, give them access to financial uh, tools, services, etc. Today, 99 plus percent of India's households have access to a bank account. And just 10 years ago, that used to be a decimal number, right? So the government's been very focused on building this infrastructure. So that's something that they've done very well. Two, they've realized that they need to provide support to these early stage companies. So they've created fund of funds. They've earmarked a billion dollars for an organization called SIDBI in India, which is India's fund of funds, which provides capital to venture capitalized capitalists like us to then go invest in early stage companies. They've also created specialized incentive schemes for startups, right? So that they don't have to uh, carry the same burden of compliance and regulatory filings that of a mature company. There are incentives and tax holidays being given. And then there are multiple schemes which are industry specific that have been launched. So electric vehicles, as an example, has a scheme called FAME, where you get a lot of tax ops and incentives provided by the government to sell electric vehicles, right? Which makes it commercially viable for you to acquire customers and serve them profitably. And, and government is doing that because electric vehicles in India are still at an early nascent stage, and they can only be commercially viable 
at at a certain scale. So it's seeding that industry by providing incentives. And when that industry reaches a certain threshold, I'm sure they'll correct on that and focus on other industry. So there are these three or four measures the government has been taking, which are very attractive and very helpful to founders. No, that's great. It's uh, it's very optimistic to see a, a government support the growth of the private sector and build initiatives that promote that growth. In, in looking at, and you were touching on this a little bit, in looking at some of the, the sectors that are experiencing the most momentum and growth, clearly technology, software, the, the government's clearly supporting some of those initiatives. You know, perhaps the the demographic, the high concentration with the average HP in 28, also probably helping support some of those trends. But what are some of the largest opportunities from a sector perspective that you're seeing in India that create great opportunities? You know, so we are very focused on investing in B2B tech businesses, right? That's our sandbox. But within that, we are sector agnostic. And we keep identifying opportunities and themes that look attractive. And the reason we pick B2B tech as our thesis is that, you know, as this whole B2C wave has unfolded, it has created very large consumer companies, right? And you, you look at any country in the world and look at any startup ecosystem, you'd find that after the advent and success of B2C companies, there is a wave of B2B companies that get built because these businesses are B2C businesses have been built in technology and are eager to adopt technology and have challenges and problems which are very obvious to them and someone needs to just identify them and solve them. So that's one big reason why B2B is a part of our thesis. The second big reason is that B2B as an industry in India is very large, right? So if you look at just small and medium enterprises, we were talking about financial inclusion and access to services and credit. There is a $400 billion credit gap for this sector, this this segment of the market, right? So someone has to step in, build an efficient business that serves customer needs profitably, right? And one of our companies in our portfolio, ProCap, which is a shining star, has done just that, right? They, they went after this credit gap and have built products which are now serving customers and helping their customers grow their business because through access to credit, they can do more business and grow their independent businesses. So that's another reason that we see B2B being a very large market in itself, serving B2C businesses and the traditional businesses in India. And third is just B2B also plays to our strengths, right? We are people that have built businesses in our past. We have a network of folks that we could connect these early stage founders to that could both act as their mentors, as their guides, and also as prospective customers. So we could help you sit in front of a decision maker a CXO and and have an audience to explain your product. Obviously, your product has to speak for itself and stand on its own feet. But the fact is that we'd provide you access, right? So these factors allow us to invest in B2B. We see that as something that will continue to grow. And within that, like I said, there'd be different themes that we will from time to time focus on, uh, which we think are ripe for innovation. Great. And you brought up ProCap, and that brings up Really, the the next question I want to want to pivot a little bit, and I don't not not sure many are aware. There's actually several U.S. mega cap uh, tech companies like Google that have their own venture capital arm, or even some of the largest U.S. venture capital firms like Sequoia that are taking a heavy investment or making a heavy investment 
into the venture capital ecosystem in India. What do you think is is the driver behind such a growing U.S. interest uh, for that investment? You know, India has now been front and center for almost all large tech companies, as well as large venture capital funds, right? Sequoia, you mentioned, has just recently closed a $2 billion fund dedicated for India, right? This is their, probably the fourth fund that's India-focused. There's Sequoia, there's Axel, there are a bunch of others that are very focused around India, have very large Indian teams. I think Sequoia in, in India now maybe has north of 40 people. It's a great footprint. For tech companies, I think India anyways was a destination because it was a great market. And now they're just extending that presence by saying, hey, you know, this is also a hot innovation bed. And we'd like to have a play in that space. So some of these companies like Google, Microsoft, they're making investments for not just for financial gains, but more importantly, for strategic reasons, right? So Google invested in ProcCap because Google has a tool called Google Pay, which is a digital payment tool, uh, which it wants to drive to these small and medium enterprises, these small store owners that are selling consumer durables. So they want them to use Google Pay to receive and send money. And the easiest way to access that is through a partner like ProcCap, right? So the strategy for many of them is to partner with these companies, get an economic ownership in them, but at the end of the day, have them align with a strategic vision of the business. And, and the bigger reason why they're all doing it is because what because of what we discussed at the start of the conversation, which is India is a very large market. It is a growth destination. If you look at the next 25 years, India is going to be, has to be front and center for your strategy, right? As a business, because that's where the growth is going to come from. That's where the largest population in the world now resides. So it's a great market and also a hotbed of innovation and tools coming from there that you can extract and deploy around the world. I know that that all makes sense, especially on the strategic initiatives part. Sticking with US a little bit, there's a lot of talk around US valuations and in the private markets particularly private equity and, and venture capital, we're seeing already markdowns in the in the 10 to 20% range, depending on the on the manager and investment with more expected, uh, making fundraising environment really difficult. So I'm curious, in looking at the India venture capital market, what do valuations as well as fundraising look at, at look like on a relative basis? So there are a lot of similarities between how things are unfolding in the US and in India. And there are some differences, right? So if you just go down the memory lane to 2021, right? We really struggled in 2021 to understand the cause of this exuberance, this excitement that everybody had and was willing to pay absurd amount of money to buy ownership in businesses, right? Because it was hard for us to wrap our head around what makes that business so valuable, right? uh, given what we're seeing as business metrics and the real world. In 2021, we made three investments, lowest in our history, because we saw a big disconnect between what was happening in the venture ecosystem and what was happening in the economy. If you think about 2021, especially you know, living in India, it wasn't a good year because we'd just come out of COVID. We didn't even know if we were fully out of COVID. There were always new waves of COVID unfolding around the world, the economy also was on uncertain ground. And yet there was all this exuberance, right? Uh, and people were deploying a lot of cash across. And now fast forward to 2023, where 
there is extreme conservatism built in, right? So what that is leading to is course correction and valuations, which is much deserved, much needed, because I think businesses got priced way ahead of what they were really worth. And, and this constraint in capital is going to make businesses more efficient, but there's going to be a lot of near-term pain. I think the difference between India and US on this account is that US economy is also in a difficult place, right? It's not growing as rapidly as it has historically, which means that if you are a business that is valued much ahead of its numbers in the past, it, it'll be even harder for you to grow into that valuation. So which means that, you know, you'll have to cut valuations more and actually take deeper cuts. And in some cases, even after those cuts, the question may still remain that will the business survive because economy isn't doing as well, right? Contrast that with India, while there is all this fear and nervous energy around should we deploy and what's really happening and, you know, valuations have gotten ahead themselves. And I think, like I said at the beginning, some course correction is important. I think we will certainly see quite a few unicorns uh, lose their pedestal, right? And and this term that we've gotten so attached to and, and hold so much reverence to suddenly will become irreverent and irrelevant. Um, <laughs> But the, but the good news for India is that the fundamental economy is growing very well, right? So if you've got a good business, you've got a strong business model, you've got a good team, you're solving a real problem in that situation, even if you have to take a little bit of near-term pain, you can grow back into, you know, your valuations or more importantly, build a business that will stand the test of time, which is very encouraging for us. Right. And that with that great overview of the Indian economy, I, I think it's a great segue into Moroc Ventures. And you've been talking a little bit throughout the way around the focus uh, of the strategy. But while this is Moroc Ventures first fund, uh, you and your partner, Sheeta Ball, uh, were are, and are very active and, and partners in, in GrowX. And would love to briefly highlight some of the successes that you've had in GrowX, which we you know, at Centura are thankful that we invested on behalf of our clients in. <laughs> and you've been very good stewards of, of that wealth. So thank you. But would love to just get a, a brief update and, and, and touch on success of GrowX. Sure. So, you know, GrowX Ventures was our maiden fund. It was the first fund that we started. Prior to GrowX Ventures, we'd been running angel syndicates like AngelList, where you know Sheetal and, and others would aggregate capital, identify companies, ident aggregate capital, and then invest. And, and on the back of that success, we thought we could build our first venture fund, which was a $25 million fund. Through that $25 million fund, we've now made 17 investments. Uh, we started investing through this fund in 2019, March of 2019, which is when we'd invested in our first company called ProCap. And we've just been very fortunate to find founding teams that are just extraordinary, that have done some incredible work. Out of the companies we invested in 2019, we now see three companies, ProCap, Pixel, and Advantage Club, that we think will each return our fund independently, right? PropCap today is already worth two and a half times our fund. And these three businesses are fundamentally strong businesses. They're, they're doing really well. Let's take Advantage Club as an example. Advantage Club over its life 
has raised $7 million. $4 million is lying in its bank, and it's already at a $6.5, $7 million ARR, right? annual revenue run rate. So I don't know of any business anywhere that has accomplished uh, so much with so little. And today it's serving its customers in 60 countries. And, and you know, we clearly see a, a path for it to get to about 20 million ARR in the next 18, 20 months. So that's one business that's really doing well. PropCap we talked a little bit about already. And Pixel is another example where, you know, when we invested in Pixel, they were building these, the, the two founders were in college and they were looking to build a constellation of 24 satellites with hyperspectral imagery, right? Very high quality imagery data, satellite data. And, you know, we, we were very thrilled that, again, that's one company where they were able to put their first satellite in orbit in under $3 million, right? So very capital efficient businesses. Now they've become large and successful because Pixel is an example. Continuing with that has now three operational satellites, right? And which are sending data to earth and that data is valuable. They've already talked to customers like Rio Tinto, Cargill, others that, that have large enterprises and need high quality data for their specific use cases. So, you know, we, we started investing in these businesses and today on a money multiple invested capital, we're a little five and a half X. And we believe the exit value of our fund to be even greater because our portfolio average vintage is still two and a half years. So we've got a really young portfolio. And we, we think there'd be even bigger, better winners that will emerge from our portfolio in years to come. Now, that's great. And you know, uh, with venture capital, I think there's so much allure, right? Because the sizzle, the, the potential for outsides gains. And but the, it's an asset class that's also defined by by loss. And you know, I think I was encouraged at our last uh, quarterly review when uh, had had heard of some of the successes on a couple of the companies that that were struggling, which in this environment to be expected. And I think you you and the team have navigated the storm um, better than than many that I've observed. So kudos to you, uh, good job. But I'm curious if you could briefly highlight one of those. Uh, struggles and the active role that the GrowX partners uh, really took to help, you know, maybe right the ship. And that's a great question. You know, interestingly, since we started investing in 2019, some of our founders have been tested by one of the most challenging periods, at least in my living memory, right? Post-COVID, businesses had to go through a lot of difficulties. And early stage businesses are very fragile because they have very little resources and when you have something like this, uh, such a large black swan event, it's very difficult for businesses to recover from that. And one thing that we're most proud of, right, um, is interesting, not the financial success, but is the perseverance of our founders, because that's one thing that we're looking for when we're investing in early stage founders. Like you said, there's a lot of allure of this industry. A lot of people want to get into it because they look at the success stories and get carried away by them. The reality is anybody who's done a startup would tell you it's a lot of hard work, right? Nothing goes as planned. <laughs> Everything changes. And, and you'll, you'll see challenges that, that'll threaten your existence almost on a weekly basis, if not daily. So we're very proud. We're very pleased that our founders have persevered through it. And two of our companies have struggled, both post-COVID were directly impacted. And as a business, we've been very prudent, first of all, towards our investors. So 
one one of those businesses we've written off the other we've written down even though we've been making efforts and we continue to make efforts to help the founders find a home for the business to make sure the employees have a good landing make sure customers that are working with the businesses and partners that are working with the businesses don't get lost right and and find seamless smooth transitions and when with one of the companies we've been engaged in multiple conversations besides just trying to find them capital uh we also were looking to find a home for the business and you know we're very happy that we've been able to find a business that's taken over the technology that they built uh the team that existed and are now looking to partner with that expertise to build larger bigger better business uh we're hopeful that you know that'll be a great outcome for the founders we still have a small economic ownership in the new entity but from our perspective we don't think this out, any financial outcome that will make a dent in our fund but at least you know we've been able to make sure that all the work and hard work that was put in into that business has not gone to waste yeah. now that's great and like I said I love hearing hearing those type of stories and the uh, the active involvement you take with with the founders and and their whole team uh to to really uh, be specific you know looking at morock and this new fund seems like a pretty ripe environment for investing given the valuations that you already discussed a little bit earlier but looking at some of the risks uh you know any investment it, it's important to look at, at we'd be remiss if we didn't look at the risks so what are some of the primary risks you see with investing in india you know so one of the obvious risks especially for offshore investors is currency right the rupee depreciation uh that weighs in people's mind a lot and in the new fund that we're setting up mirak ventures we've tried to address that by setting up a parallel vehicle in singapore which is a dollar denominated fund and we can get into specifics of that at some point so that's one obvious risk right the other is the macro environment right so we do hope and believe that india's time has come is it in the next 12 months is it 18 months later is it 24 months later when all cylinders are firing that's a little bit of an unknown and we'll just have to track how that develops right third i think in near term there is fear that's driving late stage capital and and they're holding investments back that being said funds collectively in india late stage funds collectively have raised over 6 billion dollars so they will need to start deploying that capital and companies that are successful are doing well at the end of this 12 18 month period are likely to attract a greater premium but the interim risk is can you survive the 12 to 18 month period can you build a, an attractive enough business can you make enough progress in these 12 to 18 months to stand out amongst the herd right so i think these are three questions three things that come to mind i think the fourth which is very unique to us very specific to us is that we invest in a lot of frontier tech businesses you've heard me describe space tech you've heard me describe some genomics businesses in the past that we've invested in and the depth of late stage capital available in india is not as much right so one of our constant endeavors is to build relationships around the world so one of the things we're doing in the us while we're traveling this uh, next two weeks is to meet with as many late stage vcs that are very uh, vertical focus right so 
talk to people that invest in space, talk to people that invest in life sciences and genomics, or talk to people that invest in uh, semiconductors, so that as our portfolio companies make progress, we're at least able to showcase those to these late stage VCs who can then provide them growth capital to continue to make progress. So that's a risk, right? Being able to find that later stage capital if you're a very tech first business. Mm-hmm. No, definitely uh, agree there, and I, I can, I can definitely appreciate the the forward looking approach in in trying to solve for that risk before it becomes a, a potential issue with with the founder and any of the portfolio companies. Speaking of of underwriting risk, and I can be here all day with you, Manu, talking talking about this, but we're uh, running short on time, so wanted to talk about underwriting risk a little bit. And you know, here at Centura, one of the things that we pride ourselves on is our institutional approach to due diligence. And you know, one of our value adds, we believe, is identifying top tier emerging managers such as yourself and Sheetal at GrowX and, and now Maroc. But we'd love to to talk to you a little bit about what it was like going through our due diligence process. And if there was any valuable takeaways for you as, as a, a venture capital investor and potentially going after other institutional capital that aided in, in the process. You know, that's an interesting question. There are times that I've hated you guys because of the amount of work that you put us through. But the fact is that, look, you know, I've known Derek now for maybe 15 years. And when we were setting up the first fund, we had a conversation. And because he knew of me and my background, he introduced me to the firm. And then we went through that rigorous review. I learned two things from that process about Centura. One, I think you put an extraordinary effort in finding unique opportunities for your clients. If I had wealth, I'd love to work with you, right? (laughs) I'd like to give it to you. And two, uh, irrespective of who the person is at the other side presenting an idea to you, you'll go through a very rigorous, diligent process in evaluating the individuals, the idea, the process, and also all the documentation, right? Whatever you're saying, is it really reflected in the documents, right? And so that was a great exercise. And this year, when this for Mirak, when we've done that exercise with you, you've asked us very interesting questions, which has often lent, led to us discovering some conflict in some places or not being clear enough in other areas. And I think that's been very informative for us and helped us prepare ourselves better, lay a much stronger foundation. And again, even though this is the second fund and we worked with you and, and you know, the success stories and you know they're real we still spend four to five months going through this process with you answering all the queries answering all the questions and quite frankly it's now prepared us to deal with other larger institutions as well that may want to come work with us because we have our house in order so to speak thanks to you now that's that's great to hear me and you know like you and and your founders we we like to try and create a very strategic relationship with our our asset managers and partners because uh, that's what we see you as as, as a partner so uh, i know i speak for everyone at, at centura that really value that partnership that is formed both through uh, GrowX and look to continue through Morocco and, and hopefully future endeavors so thank you and, and and again thank you for the willingness to participate in that that process i know at, at times very very painful and not enjoyable uh, but but thank you i appreciate it and and also thank you for traveling to to visit us today in the US and again just look forward to continuing this relationship so thank you Manu
we're very excited about what the future holds, Chris. And I think this has been a very good partnership. You know, not only have we enjoyed working alongside the firm and the leaders, but you've also given us access to some of the investors who could also help our portfolio companies, right? So, which is very valuable because many of the businesses that are being built in India are being built for the world. And we often look for experts, partners, relationships in the U.S., as they transition their businesses from India to the US. And I think, you know, Centura has been a great partner in providing us advice, access to those relationships, which again, adds value back to our portfolio, which in turn creates more value for your investors that have invested in the fund. So it becomes a beautiful virtuous cycle. And we look forward to more engaging conversations. And one of the things we've committed to you is that we'd be transparent about the good and the bad. And we hope to continue keep that commitment and look forward to continuous dialogue. Great. Gentlemen, this has been fantastic. Manu, you must have such a sense of pride of what's going on. It sounds like it's really, really exciting times for India. It is, Eric. You know, I'm, I'm really thrilled about the possibilities and, uh, you know, what this growth means for the masses, right? One of the things mm-hmm. we all struggle with around the world right now is this economic inequality continuing to grow. And the only way to solve for that is by driving growth and lifting more people out of poverty. And especially in countries like India, where technology can can be the only unifier, it can it, yeah. it usually doesn't have any biases and can help serve the rich and the poorest alike. So I think it's it's very exciting for us in terms of what it means for us financially, but more importantly, what it means for the country and the people that live there. Yeah, absolutely. Love that message. Chris, thank you so much for hosting the podcast. This was great, great information, very uplifting, and I loved it. And of course, our last thank you goes to you listening audience. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to the Live Life Liberated podcast with the team from Centura Wealth Advisory. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when the team comes out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. And we humbly ask that you share this podcast, rate it, and leave a review, as this actually does help others find the show. Again, thank you for listening today. For everyone at Centura Wealth Advisory, this is Eric Johnson reminding you to live your best day every day, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Live Life Liberated podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Centura Wealth Advisory. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Centura Wealth Advisory, Centura, is an SEC registered investment advisor with its principal place of business in San Diego, California. Centura and its representatives are in compliance with the current registration and notice filing requirements imposed on SEC-registered investment advisors, in which Centura maintains clients. Centura may only transact business in those states in which it is notice filed or qualifies for an exemption or exclusion from notice filing requirements. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Tax relief varies based on client circumstances and all clients do not achieve the same results. 